Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is God's work, and righteousness endures forever. God has gained renown by doing wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful, providing food for those who fear. God is ever mindful of the covenant, has shown the people the power of God's works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All divine precepts are trustworthy, established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. God sent redemption to the people and has commanded a covenant forever. Holy and awesome is God's name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have a good understanding. God's praise endures forever. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. We are walking through the season of Epiphany, listening to words of the Psalms. When I put this series together some months ago, entitling it, Because Church Ought to Be Big Enough for the Devoted and the Doubters, it was because I have a calling to those doubters, a strange desire to be able to speak to the cynics, the skeptics, those who have left the church, who have thrown out the Bible altogether. Now, I do know that I am preaching to the choir. I do know that you are not those cynics, at least not the cynics who have walked away. We have a few cynics here, I think. But maybe if we could hear our Scripture differently, understand the origins of our religion better, maybe we would be better equipped to open the door of true welcome. All are welcome, the devoted and the doubters alike. Psalm 111, as I've just read it to you, sounds pretty churchy, you know? It's overtly religious, all that religious language. So how might that speak to the doubters? Listen for the word covenant. What is a covenant and how might we all hear that word anew? Let me try to answer that question first by telling you how Coca-Cola became kosher. It's an interesting story. In the 1930s, one Orthodox rabbi began receiving letters from his congregation asking if a new soda on the market was kosher. Rabbi Geffen's inquiry into that issue eventually led Coke to become the first major brand to give attention to kosherizing its contents. That whole process also led PhD-trained Jewish chemists to study the molecular compounds of the preservatives in our foods, the way we produce our foods, the plastics we use to package them, in order to certify whether our highly processed foods are kosher or not. 
PhD trained Jewish chemists are involved in that process today. The Coke story comes down to the glycerin that is used in small quantities to diffuse Coke's secret ingredient in the drink. Glycerin was produced using animal fat, which made it non-kosher. So the Coca-Cola company asked Procter & Gamble, their supplier for glycerin, to make a vegetable-based glycerin. And for the next two decades, everything was, well, kosher. Jews enjoyed Coca-Cola. But then in the 1950s, other rabbis discovered that this kosher glycerin was traversing the manufacturing plant of Procter & Gamble through a set of pipes, the same set of pipes that they were using to deliver animal-based glycerin for other products. And that contact, however minuscule, those non-kosher pipes at the Procter & Gamble plant made Coke non-kosher as well. It took $30,000 worth of new, separate, kosher pipes installed at the P&G plant to take care of that. And ever since, Jews around the world have been drinking Coca-Cola to their heart's content. Can you imagine? All that time and money and effort, the tiniest amounts of kosher glycerin, and the slightest possible contamination being pumped through non-kosher metal pipes. Who could possibly care about such legalistic minutiae? Isn't that silly? Well, maybe not. Here's what I want to say about kosher coke and about this whole series we're doing. Maybe it's not just about God. Maybe there's something important going on with religion, maybe even more important than God. Maybe religion and the religious life is actually about us. Maybe what we eat and what we drink and how we dress and the rules we follow, maybe all those little details can actually help us to be more human and more humane. Maybe they're not just abstract principles, supernatural laws. Maybe the rules have a practical basis. One thing we do know about rules, any rules, all rules, whatever rules, criminal or civil, traffic rules or sports rules, rules are going to be fretted about, fought over in microscopic detail. It's natural. And it's necessary. Our democracy is filled with examples, crazy lawsuits and crazy loopholes. They drive me crazy. But in these, we are working out the limits of our freedom. It's strange, maybe frustrating, but we ought to celebrate this. We certainly do not want to give up on democracy because we're not willing to work out our freedom to the nth degree. So if we back up the kosher story like way back, you realize that those kosher laws began like way back, many, many centuries ago, and many scholars believe they were developed out of a basic need for food hygiene. 
Maybe in certain regions, some foods needed to be eaten and some not eaten. Maybe food needed to be prepared or cooked in a particular way in order to be healthy. And maybe that's where it all started. And maybe the codes of conduct, morality, and ethics also developed out of a practical need. As human beings developed, codes of conduct helped us develop. The Code of Hammurabi was established 1,700 years before Jesus. Enshrining the rule of fair retaliation, that is, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this Babylonian legal charter is one of the first known civic contracts. You could call it a covenant. After that, just to name a few, we could cite the Ten Commandments and the Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. 4,000 years of human beings trying to learn to live together, forming covenants of all kind. And the psalmist said, God is ever mindful of the covenant. The precepts are trustworthy, established forever. Those who practice wisdom have a good understanding. Did you know that today only one in ten kosher products is purchased by a Jewish person? You see, even Gentiles know that kosher food has been prepared meticulously. Muslims who don't eat pork, vegetarians who don't eat any meat, and lactose intolerant shoppers who can't consume milk products are among the many Americans who now shop for kosher food because they can trust it. It just makes sense. Wow. Maybe we can all be grateful for those crazy kosher laws. Thanks be for covenants. Thanks be to God. Psalm 111 reads almost like a resume for God. In fact, one commentator said, if I were tasked with introducing God as our visiting lecturer, I would use this psalm. Psalm 111 summarizes God's position, accomplishments, and attributes. It even identifies a personal connection between the one offering the introduction and the one being introduced, which motivates a connection between God and those to whom God is being introduced. After the praise and accolades given to God by the psalmist, there is a listing of accomplishments and promises. And the implication throughout the introduction of who God is throughout this particular introduction of who God is and what God does is that God does not act for God's self alone, but rather God is in relationship. So if God were the guest lecturer or the guest preacher here today, God would not just present to us important, transformative, life-changing information God would include us 
and woo us into living a life connected and united in relationship to both the divine and with each other. So since God is not the guest preacher today, and I've been tasked with this job, I guess that makes it my job to woo you into living a life connected and united in relationship with God and with each other. In verse 5 of Psalm 111, the psalmist notes, God is ever mindful of the covenant. A covenant is an agreement. But in biblical terms, it's more than agreement. It has the feel of promise, divine promise. In our house, a promise meant something. You could say you were going to do something. But if someone asks you to promise about it, well, that takes it to a whole other level. A promise had a heavier meaning. A promise meant you had to do it. A person's word should be enough, but a promise, it, it sealed the deal. If you'll remember when, back in the good old days, when we could all be together and bless babies and introduce them to the congregation for a parent-child dedication, which we have a couple of babies waiting for that right now. We gather the rest of the children here at the front, and we ask them to make promises. And if you'll remember, sometimes we'll ask, do you promise to pick this child up when this child falls? And they'll say, we promise, and that just won't do. And I have to have them redo it and so that they say, we promise, because a promise means something. The idea that the psalmist notes that God has not and will not forget the covenant should ring in our ears that God is faithful. God promises that. If we all decided to agree that in order to live together on this earth, we need a set of codes and covenants or promises for how to simply be civil to one another at the very least and how to actually take care of one another at the most, which would be ideal. And what are we as people of faith, if not idealists? So people of faith gave words and beliefs to the system of religion to signify that God was in this with us. We would not be left to our own devices to figure it out. God would show us the way. But to those skeptics out there who would question God's role in any of this, perhaps this should be noted. For the devoted, when we talk, it often sounds like God made the covenant, and as believers, we accept it and join in. But perhaps it's better explained this way. In keeping the covenant, we discover God. We can get really stuck on how and when and where these things get started, but maybe we should just acknowledge that it is in the living of the covenant that we find that there is something wholly other to this life we live. It is beyond us and within us, and the more we discover, the more we want to uncover. It is in the pursuit of God 
that I have truly found God. So what are you pursuing these days? The very first covenant mentioned in the Bible is not in the Garden of Eden. It does not take hold with those first people. The first covenant that is talked about in the Bible is the covenant with Noah. It's more than just, okay, I promise not to destroy the earth ever again. It's a covenant that values life, all of life. And then there's a progression to the other covenants in the Bible that we find. Next, there's a covenant with Abraham, which is forward thinking. It's not just offering blessing in the here and now, but for generations to come. This serves as a reminder that we are not alone and we will never be alone. That's the covenant. Then there was a covenant with Moses. This one gets more specific and is more about the details of living by a set of codes or rules. We call them the Ten Commandments, but they seem to be an effort to lay out with some specifics what it means to be in relationship with God and with each other. Later on, God established a covenant with David. This covenant is very similar to the covenant that was established with Abraham, but the slight nuance here is that God seems to be saying, I can work with this person to do great things, which then, if we follow the biblical line, takes us to God working with Jesus to do great things, who then commissions us to be the kind of people that God can work with too, Jesus even telling us that we will do what he has done, and greater things than that. And then Jeremiah describes the final covenant that we have listed in the Bible. It's a new covenant, where the covenant is so within us that we won't need any more covenants. We are the covenant. And today's psalm reminds us God is ever mindful of the covenant. Each week during the Epiphany series that we're in, Russ is speaking to the skeptics, to the doubters, while I'm speaking to the devoted. We each have much to learn from the other, and the truth is there's likely a little of both in all of us. So to the devoted and to the doubters who are still listening, let me offer a thought about this whole covenant conversation. Dan could not have set this up any better if we had talked about it ahead of time, which we did not do. He had the notes, but he didn't know this was the, the oomph of the sermon. So thanks, Dan, for setting this up. If we believe that God is, and if we believe that God is at work among us and within us, and if we believe that God is always working for good, and if we believe that God has given us to one another to tend to one another and to all of creation, then perhaps all that is left for us to covenant is to be about the covenant of God, which is just the work of God. So all that's left for us is 
to be the covenant. And we have a whole set of examples to show us the way. If we are the covenant, then we turn to the stories of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, to the sayings of Jesus, to the lessons of Jesus, the examples of Jesus. It will be clear what our part in the covenant is. It won't be easy, and sometimes it will not be obvious. But it is at least, let's be honest, clear what our part of the covenant is. It almost gets annoying to keep saying it and hearing it as if we've never said it or heard it before. But because most folks don't really live it, it bears repeating here because this is just about the only place we hear this kind of thing anymore. So my apologies if the litany gets old or repetitive or makes you want to eye-roll emoji about it, but here goes. This is what our covenant with God should be about. If God is ever mindful of the covenant, then we should be ever mindful as well, since we are, in fact, the covenant within our very being. And the covenant is about the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's about the greatest shall be the servant. It's about the least of these. It's about the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the outcast. It's about the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf. It's about that one lost sheep and that one lost coin. Not just about what's best for the most, but the one that feels disenfranchised and different and out of sync and lost, they are the ones that we search for. It's about speaking the truth in love. It's about tilling and keeping the earth. It's about welcoming the stranger. It's about making earth as it is in heaven. It's about not casting stones and offering forgiveness. It's about not keeping a record of wrongs. It's about justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. It's about doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with your God. It's about good Samaritan living, knowing how to be a neighbor that bandages wounds and gives a ride and pays for all the cost of caring for those in need. It's about patience and kindness and outdoing one another in showing honor. It's about extending hospitality to strangers. It's about turning over tables in anger when people are being taken advantage of and gouged for the unholy profit of a system. It's about healing on the Sabbath and communing with those least likely to be accepted, even if it means being criticized by those in power for not succumbing to the status quo. It's about living in gratitude, the way the one leper out of the ten turned back to say thank you for being made well. 
It's about ushering people who are being stepped on and stepped over into the healing waters when they are stirred by the angels. And it's about being the angels to stir the water ourselves so that healing in every way may be made possible for everybody. It's about hope and peace and joy and love. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about bearing one another's burdens. If God is ever mindful of the covenant, then as the devoted, let us commit ourselves to covenant living. For that matter, maybe the doubters could join in with us, for it is good for us individually and collectively to make these kinds of promises to spend our lives keeping our word. And in this kind of passionate pursuit of God's covenant, maybe, just maybe, we will find God along the way. God has promised that to us. May we promise as well. Amen.